Um, we've just completed a six-week series this summer where Dan and Isaac were talking about the attributes or the qualities of God. And it was during that time we were able to see who God is and we were able to see what he's like. Well, this morning we're going to see how God gives us the reason for our hope, especially when we're in a time of life's trials or a storm in life. The video that you saw, the trailer there, is from a movie about five years ago that was called Hope for Hurting Hearts. It's a great movie, and it basically talks about the true stories of broken people dealing with the storms of life and the trials of life. And I would imagine there's probably somebody here today that is either entering a storm, that is in the middle of a storm, or is at the end of a storm. So we're going to look and see what God's Word says about that. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at a place that many of you are familiar with. It's Romans 5. Our theme text is going to be Romans 5, 1 through 5. And it's always good to pull out a Bible. So if you're new to Bible study, if you turn about three-quarters of the way through, hopefully you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you get to book Acts, Romans, if you see Revelation, you've got to come back to the left. But it's, it's page 1198 in your pew Bible. And knowing that these aren't just mere words on a page, this is truly the Word of God. Let's stand in honor of reading God's Word. Romans 5, 1-5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love for us has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father God, as we come to this time of worship, Father, my prayer is that you will just speak to us through your word, that you'll open up our hearts and minds, and that you'll help us to apply your word through our faith to where we are today with the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, help us to better understand our hope that is found in you because it centers on your Son, Jesus Christ. And I ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Now, in looking at that movie, it had been a number of years, but it just made me think. And I guess for people that I come into contact with, I've been in full-time ministry now for about 13 years, and... I've seen a lot of people who've been in despair or deeply depressed, and I just can't think of a worse place to be when you have no hope. No hope for living. Because when you're at that dark of a place, it affects us emotionally, it affects us physically, and affects us spiritually. Because when a person loses hope, that's a dangerous place that they could be. You may know, it may be a person that doesn't have a desire to live. A person may be suicidal, have suicidal thoughts, hoping for death. Well, this morning, God's Word gives us very good news. 
God's word gives us a reason for hopeful living, despite where you may be or where a loved one may be. I think there's something that you can offer, a hope that doesn't disappoint and a hope that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So to give you a little background, as we look at Romans, a little background on the writer, Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And Paul says, I was a bondservant first. And Paul, before his, he was a great teacher, before he was a great communicator, he knew that he was to serve the Lord. But Paul also was a great leader. And the more that you read about Paul, the more that you'll understand. This book of Romans offers the most systematic teaching of doctrine in the Bible. It's about our human dilemma and God's solution for it. You see, Paul's letter gives us the central belief of our faith. It's the pinnacle, it's the Mount Everest of what we believe as followers of Christ. And although Paul had not visited the church when he actually wrote this letter, he knew that Rome was the most influential city in the world at that time. He knew it was important to have a church in that city. And when Paul wrote the letter, I don't think he was attempting merely to inform them, but he was attempting to transform that church just as he does today through his word. So a little background before we get to back to verse 5. The first four chapters of Romans... Paul was telling us there's two key uh, transitional points. There's two themes that we learn from those first four chapters. The first is every one of us sitting in this room, including me, is sinful. Everybody's a sinner. And it's our sin that separates us from God. And all fall short of the glory of God. The other thing that he talks about is because we're sinful, because we fall short... We need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves, no matter what you do, especially through the trials and the storms that we go through that we're all going to face. Simply put, what Paul was saying is we were justified. We were made right by our faith alone in Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 1. Let's kind of dive into that a little bit. So as we learn that we're sinful, we're separated from God, and we need a Savior, this is what he says. Therefore, we know these things. Since you have been justified by faith or by your belief, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The key word here is justified. It means that we're made right by believing in Jesus. So since we have been made right by our faith or our belief, it goes on to tell us that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The key word in the second part of that verse is peace. The peace that Paul's talking about here is not like a tranquility or a peace that we all seek to have. It's not like when you're out on the boat, out on the water. It's not like when maybe you're in God's Word. It's not maybe when you're walking the dog. Everybody seeks an opportunity to try to get through the stresses of life and find a peaceful place. But what Paul was talking about here is actually a peace treaty. There's no more separation from God. The peace treaty comes to us because Jesus Christ is the peacemaker and he's our mediator. And by believing in him, we no longer are subject to God's wrath. So you may be asking the question, so, so what do you mean? How is it that, that we have this peace? I guess a couple of things to think about. Let's just say if you're a cancer patient and you've been going through radiation or chemo for a number of months, 
and the radiologist or the, the cancer specialist comes up to you and he says, you know what? You're cured. You have no more cancer in your body. Or think of a death row inmate. You've probably heard the story where somebody was accused, they were found guilty of murdering an individual, and they go to death row. But through technology and through DNA evidence, they actually discover that that person was not the one who committed that crime. And that judge goes to him and says, you're free. See, we have been cured and we've been given our freedom from our sin because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Billy Graham talks about what justification and peace means with God. And he basically talks about it's not really our work or our deeds that earn our way into heaven. I can tell you right now, you can't earn your way in. But in his book, The Reason for My Hope, this is what he says. I will hear him call my name, not because I have preached more than 70 years, not because I've done anything good. And I can tell you, he did a lot of good. But I will hear my name because his sheep hear his voice. The Lord Jesus has heard my confession of sin, my acknowledgement of his need, and he reached down and he saved me, and he purchased my soul with his blood. If you're trying to earn your way through your deeds, you won't and you can't. If you like reading uh, biographies, I encourage you to go read about Martin Luther. Early in his life, when he was into the Word, he, he was one that would do a good thing, and then he would actually sin, and he'd have to go and have confession. And an hour or two later, he'd do some things that were good, then he would sin, and he'd have to go to confession. Then he'd do something good, and he'd have to go to confession. And he finally figured out, it's not anything that I can do. But it's actually through God's grace. So let's look at verse 2. It says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And the key word here is access. We have obtained our access to God through our faith or our belief in Jesus Christ. You see, it was at the point of justification. It was at that point when you said, I want to be a follower of Christ. I claim him as my Lord and Savior that we were made right. And I want you to think about access in this way and who we actually have access to. I know there's a lot of prominent people that are in this church. But I wonder how many people could actually call President Trump or call Vice President Pence or call Jordan Spieth, call LeBron James and say, hey, I'm in town tomorrow, I want to have lunch. I know that you're in town this week and I want to play around the golf with you. Or, hey, I want to go play a pickup game of basketball. Chances are there aren't many of you who have that access. But the good news is, is we have access to the Creator, who not only created this world, He created every person in here, He created these gentlemen that I mentioned. But we have access through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the thing is, is we don't deserve the access, but we get it through God's grace. So let's look at the second part of verse 2. So it says, Though we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The key word here is rejoice. It also means exultation. It's even more than joy. 
Maybe a way to think about it is I know last year the, the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. The whole city is rejoicing. They're so happy. They're so happy they go and they burn cars. They loot businesses. They break buildings. They break glass. You know, they, they, they're just so happy with that. Okay? I'm also from the South. You probably can't tell from my, the way I talk. But in the South, football is pretty big. And it seems that Alabama wins a national championship about every other year. And I can tell you that when Alabama wins a national championship, they don't just rejoice for that night or that next day. They rejoice for the month. They rejoice for the whole year because that's what they believe. Football is so big for them. But if you look at it, it says, again, we rejoice in the hope of the glory for God. Can you imagine the joy and the exaltation when that day when God calls you home and you step over that line and you have the ability to see maybe a lost son or daughter, a spouse, a parent, you see Jesus with his arms out wanting to hug you. I can't imagine the joy or the exaltation that we'll get from that moment. You see, this access that we have to God through Jesus Christ because of what we believe is central to our hope, regardless of the failures, regardless of the difficulties or the storms that you're going through life. We need to understand that this incredible hope is an eternal reward that we get with this access. I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about some doctrinal things with the word salvation. Paul has use salvation kind of in three tenses, a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. But Dr. David Jeremiah in his book, Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World, talks about how people view salvation. This is how many Christians believe, and he says this. We tend to simplistically, simplistically think of salvation as a passing moment, the one when we accept Jesus Christ. Even then, we consider it to be a simple intellectual decision that affiliates or links us with a religion and serves as a simple ticket to heaven's gate. Something to tuck away and to forget about, like that life insurance policy or that birth certificate. You see, Paul had a little different idea when it came to salvation. He uses this dynamic word in three ways. The first one is the word justification, which we saw in verse 1. He talks about this in chapter 3. The justification is that moment when that either four years ago, four months ago, 40 years ago, when you made that decision of saying, I want to follow Christ, He is my Lord and Savior, at that point you were justified, you were made right. It's the moment that when we say yes to Jesus, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we have our sins washed away by the blood of Christ. That debt of sin and separation was declared paid in full. We can never change regardless of what we do. That's the past tense of when it happened. But the the word sanctification, another seminary term, it's real simple. It just means being more like Christ. And that sanctification process starts as soon as we're justified. At that point, to the point that God either calls us home or that Jesus returns, it's at that point that we become more and more like him. And by that, it's by being in the Word. It's through prayer and communication. It's by worshiping 
corporately like this. It's by singing together. It's by being around fellow Christians because we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit changes our heart and changes our minds and the way that we think. I can, I can tell you this. Where I was five years ago, where I was ten years ago, twenty years ago, I am a different person today because I believe that I'm becoming more and more like Christ because of the Word, because of my time alone with God in prayer. And that's that big word, sanctification. We're becoming more and more. But there's another salvation that he talks about, and that's future salvation. And that's the glorious aspect of it. And in verse 2, it talks about the glory, the most thrilling of all. There will be a day when we finally are freed from the presence of sin. No sin in our lives, sin is gone. Think about this. You know, when we were created, when God created man, when he created Adam and Eve, he created us to live forever, to not age, to not have disease, to not have illness, to actually be nice to each other. He created the world where there were no hurricanes, there were no tornadoes. The world was just in perfect balance. But because of man's fall, it all changed. See, having that glorification, having that future with God, not just now but eternally, this should give us our tremendous hope because in this life we're going to fall short. But God's Word goes on. He knows that this hopeful living is not easy. So this is what Paul tells us because I think God and and what Paul was saying is very realistic about life. In verse 3, He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Do you really exalt? Do you really rejoice when you're going through a storm? If you've worked for a company for 20 years and they come to you and they say, we're downsizing, you don't have a job anymore. Does that bring joy? When a loved one is diagnosed with a disease that the doctor gives the prognosis that you only have months or days to live, does that bring joy? How about if a spouse says, I don't want to be married anymore? I don't think that brings joy. And it's contrary to our human nature, but this is what Paul was talking about that in terms of rejoicing in our sufferings. It's not the suffering itself but knowing that this pain and this suffering will end one day. And these situations that we go through, these storms of life that we experience, I think help us to be more and more like Christ. We learn about life through the suffering. And it's actually through our own lives, our own stories, that we have the ability to minister to other people because you're not the only one who goes through a storm. In verse 4, it talks about the endurance. It says, an endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This formula for hope that God gives helps to shape us. I think endurance, as it says, produces character, but I think endurance also reveals character, and it helps us to be more and more like Christ. When I was looking at the video and I was just thinking about certain people who've really had to persevere through trials, I think of somebody like uh, Nelson Mandela. He was in jail for 27 years before he became the leader of the country. Martin Luther King, when it came to the civil rights movement, 
I think there was a lot of perseverance that he had to overcome. We just heard last night that Senator McCain passed. But Senator McCain, Lee Ellis, James Stockdale, from the plight that they had, I understand, for five years in what was called the Hanoi Hilton. Could you have gone through that? I don't know if I could have. There was a great book, great movie called Unbroken with Louis Zamperini. It's an amazing story of endurance. The things that he had to go through. You know, Hollywood talked about an aspect or a phase of the life that he went through. When he was lost at sea, he was found. He was in a Japanese prison camp. He was moved to another one. He was, he was abused because of what he had accomplished before the war. But the one thing that the Hollywood story doesn't tell you about is when he came home, he was very bitter. He was in a very dark place. See, he didn't have the Lord. He was an alcoholic. He was heading to a place where he had no hope. But he actually went to a Billy Graham crusade. And it was there that he heard the gospel. And it was there that he actually claimed Christ to be his Lord and Savior. And his life turned around. My understanding is is there's supposed to be a second movie coming out about his life that's going to focus on that aspect. In the movie, I don't know if you noticed, but there was a fellow up there. His name is Nick Volacek. I've had the privilege of meeting him. He was the fellow that he was sitting on a chair out at the beach. He didn't have any arms. He was, he was from Australia. He's born no arms, no lower extremities. When you first meet him, you stare at him. And his life is absolutely amazing of how God has used him through the disabilities, the physical disabilities that society says that he has. And to hear his story, he travels around the world. He's married. I think he's had at least one child. But I I encourage you to go watch that movie if you haven't seen it. It's a great movie. But it's a great... you, You learn more about his story. But when I heard him and I heard his story, I just said to myself, what's my excuse? I have my arms. I have my legs. God's given me a mind to where I can think. And I'm just going, how amazing is an individual like that that actually overcame what most people would say you can't overcome? So the question is, is could you endure like those people that I just mentioned? If you look at verse 5, it goes on to say, And hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. See, the hope does not disappoint. That is hope in God. I can tell you this, if you put your hope into a team, let's just say if you're a Redskins fan or you're a Ravens fan and you're hoping you're going to win the Super Bowl this year, you might not. If you put your hope into a person, I can tell you at some point in time that person is going to disappoint you. But I can tell you that if you put your hope in God, God's not going to disappoint you. And especially as you come to learn and be more and more like Christ and your mind and your heart is being transformed, you realize the lens that you look through is different. And my hope is, is that 
you have a burden of wanting other people to know what you know. Turn with me one book over to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to look at a passage, a verse that you're very familiar with, and it's where Paul is talking to us, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And this is what Paul is telling us. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. What Paul's saying is you're not the only one who has trials or who has difficulty or temptation. He goes on to say God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This is an incredible promise from God. No matter how hard, God is not going to put you into something you cannot bear. Count on this promise of God. He gives us that inner strength and hope. But Paul goes on to say, but with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, the promise of God, we see the end game. We are given this inner strength by the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us deal with all life throws our way. I can tell you, as every one of us on a daily basis, we have... Decisions that we make that we can either go left, which may be the sinful route, or we can go right, which may be the righteous or the best route. And what God is saying is, I'm going to give you that out to go to the right. I don't always make that right decision. But I know when I do make the decision that's the wrong one, it seems immediately that Holy Spirit puts something on my heart saying, Zach, that was a sorry thing to do. And even as believers, regardless of how long you've been a believer, you still sin. But the good thing is, is by being a believer, God's forgiven you for those sins. But hopefully as you go through life, who you are, how you are, changes. Because that love that God has given to us and that we understand, I can tell you there are a lot of people that are not in this church today that don't know who Jesus is. And again, my burden, as I tell the staff, if there's anything that they can say about me, is that I have a burden for those who don't know Jesus. And my hope is that you do as well. But not only that, there's one other part of good news, and that's the tomb is empty. And what does that mean? That, you know, when you look at what Christ did for us, Christ was brutally beaten. If you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, it gives you a glimpse of what he went through. I I think uh, I've read there's been, there were maybe 30,000 crucifixions that had taken place. But basically, when you're hanging up on a cross, you're just suffocating. You try to lift yourself so you can actually breathe. But the weight of your body doesn't allow to do that. But before Christ got to the cross, Dr. William Lane Craig said that He was beaten so much that you probably wouldn't even recognize him as a human being. See, the Romans were really good at what they did when it came to execution. But I can tell you this. The person you're sitting next to, I bet you love them a whole bunch. Maybe somebody who's not here, I bet you you love them a whole bunch. But I can tell you the love that God demonstrated to us by having his son go through what he did... God loves you more than anybody that you love in this place. But not only did Christ go through just a terrible physical 
trauma or abuse, but he also took on our sins. He faced for the first time in his life the separation from his father, and he had all the guilt, all the shame, all the filth of who we are from that time forward. He took all of that on for us. It was the first time he was rejected and totally alone, and it was more than he could bear. He went to the cross because he was obedient in believing his father. He trusted his father. And his father resurrected him from the dead, and today Jesus is our intercessor, and he's our access to God. Through this incredible trial, Jesus trusted his father's will, and I can tell you this, you can trust God as well. That is the reason for our hope. And there's one added bonus if you look at the second part of verse 5. It says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. See, the moment we were justified, the moment that we were made right, the moment that we said, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, I believe in who you are, at that moment we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the power and the strength to face the storms of life that we go through. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, the encourager. He convicts us, and he gives us that inner desire to obey. And the Holy Spirit gives us that supernatural power to love our neighbor, even when they're not good to us. It's just not natural. The Holy Spirit gives us that desire to share the love of Christ. There's no greater act of love than to show our fellow man that Jesus loves them. So here's a question that I have for you. If you had a loved one who was diagnosed with an incurable disease, and the doctor told you that your your son, your daughter, your spouse had three or four months to live, the question would be is what would you do? Some may say this was the card we were dealt, We're going to pray, we're going to spend this time together, and we're going to get through it. But you may be one who says, you know what, we're going to beat this. I'm going to go, and with the research and all the information available through the Internet, you spent hours and hours and hours, days and weeks, trying to say, who has an answer for this? Well, let's just say a month before your your child or your, or your spouse is quote, supposed to die, you actually find a doctor in South Africa who actually has a cure for that disease. The question is, would you tell your spouse? Would you tell your kids? Would you tell the doctor? See, I think you would because I think you love your children. I think you love your wife. Well, If you haven't heard this before, there's an incurable disease out there, and it's called sin. And you, as a follower of Christ, have the cure. So would you tell somebody that? Because that's what we're called to do. One of the things that I tell our staff is our job is to equip you, the ministers of the church, One of the reasons we do renew is we know that you need to be discipled. But we need to equip you. We need to help you find what your spiritual gifts are. We need to help you to match your passions up with places that you want to serve. You may be able to serve here within the walls of the church, or you may be able to serve where the mission field starts, which is outside the parking lot. 
You may want to serve locally. You may want to do something nationally. You may have a call to do something international, either with a short-term trip or maybe be called to take yourself or your family somewhere. But our job as a staff is to help you, to equip you, so that you as the ministers can go do the mission that we have as this church, as being renewed by the gospel to be able to renew Annapolis and beyond. I want to share a story with you as we're closing. And this is a story that I think you all know, but you may not know all the parts of the story. It goes like this. One of the passengers was a godly pastor from Scotland by the name of John Harper. John Harper recently spent three months ministering at the Moody Bible Church in Chicago, and during which time the church had experienced one of the most wonderful revivals in its history. It's an amazing church. He had been back to Britain, or I'm sorry, he had not been back in Britain long when he was asked to return to Chicago and continue his ministry. He quickly made arrangements for himself and his six-year-old daughter, Nana, to travel back to America on board the Lusitania, which was like a, a passenger cruise ship. However, he decided to delay his departure for one week so that they could sail on a new ship, the Titanic, which was about to make its maiden voyage. The Titanic struck an iceberg at 11.40 on April 14, 1912. As the call was issued for passengers to vacate their cabins, Harper wrapped his daughter in a blanket, took, told her that he would see her again one day, and passed her to one of the crewmen. After watching her safely board on one of the lifeboats, he removed his life jacket and he gave it to one of the other, life, or one of the other passengers. One survivor distinctly remembered hearing him shout, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. Harper knew that believers were ready to die, but the unsaved were not. Harper then ran along the decks, pleading with people to turn to Christ. And with the ship sinking, he called upon the Titanic's orchestra to play, Nearer my God to thee. Gathering people around him on deck, he knelt He knelt down, and with holy joy in his face, he raised his arms in prayer. As the ship began to lurch, he jumped into the icy waters and swam frantically to all he could reach, beseeching them to turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Finally, as hypothermia set in, John Harper sank beneath the waters and passed into the Lord's presence and glory. He was 39. But the story doesn't end there. Four years later, a young Scotsman by the name of Aquila Webb stood up in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and gave the following testimony. He said, I'm a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck, near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away. But strange to say, brought him back a little later, and he said, Are you saved now? (laughs) No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after he went down, and there, alone in the night, and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I was John Harper's last convert. Over 1,500 people perished that night. But apparently God wanted Webb's amazing testimony to be shared 
because only seven people were plucked from the icy water to join the survivors in the lifeboat. Webb was one of them. In the Hollywood movie of the Titanic, nothing was said of John Harper, but he was truly one of the great heroes of the Titanic. In the face of death and drowning, he was concerned about the souls of men. Can there be a greater love than this, staying faithful to the very end? So in closing, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're dealing with, either yourself or a family member. But I can tell you, regardless of how difficult the storm or the situation may feel, Jesus Christ can bring you comfort. Maybe God's put a, a friend or a coworker or another family member on your heart because they're struggling through a storm. Maybe you don't know how to respond. What are you going to do about it? I encourage you, if you haven't seen the movie, Hope for Hurting Hearts, I encourage you to see that movie. If you've seen it or if you don't see it, I hope that you'll seek out one of our elders or someone on staff that can pray for you and help you in making that decision to help somebody who maybe doesn't know Christ or to help yourself deal with something that you feel is unbearable. You know, there's an incredible hope that we have in Jesus Christ. My hope is that you have a burden to tell others. Let's pray. Father God, you know who's struggling here. Father, you know many that may be here, they don't know you. They may lack hope. Father, my prayer is, is I hope that they will recognize the love that you have for us because of what you did for us through your Son. I hope, Father, they'll call on you and claim you as Lord and Savior. And Father, for those that are believers, knowing that many may be going through a storm, either entering or in the middle or maybe coming out. Father, I pray that they'll reach out to you once again. And may your Holy Spirit bring them the strength and the comfort that only you can provide. And Father, I thank you for knowing that we have the ultimate hope of being with you forever because of your love for us. And it's in your Son's name that I pray. Amen.